Hello and welcome to Leeds Voices, a brand new weekly podcast brought to you from the University of Leeds. I'm Alex Regan and each week we'll be bringing insightful interviews from those who studied or work at Leeds. And for our first podcast, we're brought to you by Royal Appointment. This week sees the coronation of King Charles III and who better to talk us through the coronation than The Telegraph's own associate editor and professional royal watcher, Camilla Tomine. Camilla studied law at Leeds before embarking on a career in Fleet Street which has seen her write on the Queen's death, royal scandals and even report from outside a royal birth while heavily pregnant. We spoke to her in April about her journey, the significance of the royal coronation in the 21st century and the tightrope walk of being a parent and a journalist. I studied law and um, that was after I was at school at St Albans High School for Girls. Um, and um, I really enjoyed the studying of law at Leeds because it was a great course and it had a, the faculty had a really good reputation and it was great fun. But when I was studying there and going to the library and all the rest of it, I kind of found myself being more fascinated in the stories behind the cases and the cases themselves in a way and how they were being reported in the newspaper. Um, I can remember going into the library and looking at what was called the microfiche in those days of old newspaper articles. And that kind of fascinated me. So when I left, I was in a bit of a quandary as to what to do. I did the typical thing of going traveling with some mates for about nine months, then came back and started applying to local newspapers and ended up getting a job on the Hemel Hempstead Gazette, which is near me because I'm from Hertfordshire. And I spent um, a couple of years there being trained up on little or no money. I think my first paycheck was about... 10 grand a year or something, which compared to promised legal salaries was obviously um, rather reduced. But I just wanted to be a journalist (laughs) more than I wanted to be a lawyer. And then from there, I ended up working at the Sunday Express for 15 years, where I initially started covering showbiz and did the kind of nighttime diary beat for a while before I moved into royal reporting in 2005, because the royal reporter left after Charles and Camilla got married. And then I got promoted to political editor there just after Brexit um, because we needed to kind of strengthen the political team. So I was deputy initially and then ended up political editor. So I did both the royals and the political beat for them. And then uh, in 2018, I ended up getting headhunted by um, my now deputy editor, Rob Winnett, to work at The Telegraph. And I still straddle both of those patches. So I still do politics and royals. And obviously it's been quite a, quite a busy period for both politics and royal watchers. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the job of reporting on the royals has changed over the last decade? Because obviously, you know, one of the most uh, momentous occasions in our lifetimes has happened, the end of the second Elizabethan era. Yes. I mean, I always kind of went into the job knowing that the biggest story of my career would be covering the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, And when you're working in a patch with a monarch in their 90s, you never know when that day will come. Um, When it did come last September, I mean, as you can imagine, it was just this huge news story. But also you're personally impacted because as everybody was who's got any fondness for the Queen, even if you're a Republican and you don't believe in the monarchy, I think most people had a degree of respect for the Queen as an individual, then it's quite a momentous thing to to need to be writing up. And you wait for that kind of story for a long, long time. And there's a lot of planning that goes into it so that 
everything happens very seamlessly the moment that it's announced. Um, but at the same time, you're having to write live copy in reaction to moving events. And it's a, it's a two-pronged story, really, because you're dealing with the aftermath of the death of a monarch who's been on the throne for 70 years. But you're also looking towards the new monarch and seeing how the king is initially behaving and being accepted by the public and all the rest of it. So that was an enormous story. But then the sort of births, deaths and marriages of royal coverage are big stories. Um, The wedding of um, Prince William to Kate Middleton, as she was then known in 2011, was huge not just for writing, but also because I started doing a lot of broadcasts back then and I'd been on this morning for a few years, but I also did a lot of work for the American um, broadcaster NBC and that kind of requires a completely different mindset because it's like big hair and lots of makeup and sitting at a specially made set and co-anchoring the wedding with, you know, massive heavyweight people who have flown over from the States to cover the event. So that adds a different dynamic, but it's the same with, I mean, I've been at all of the, had this front row in royal history to see them get married, to, to witness, um, you know, William and Kate on the steps of the Lindo wing after the birth, the birth of Prince George and Charlotte and Louis, then to see Harry and Meghan get married, um, broke the story of Harry and Meghan dating in the first place in October 2016 for the Sunday Express. So, yeah, it's strange, really. It's a sort of voyeuristic role to, to watch all these things happen and then write them up. And you mentioned there that you've done some work for NBC, and obviously there's a huge international audience for the royals. When people think of Great Britain, they probably think about the royal family if they're uh, from abroad. How does that differ and I mean what what sort of pressure do you feel broadcasting to such a huge audience like you know the whole of the US for NBC yeah I think the NBC coverage I didn't know at the time I suppose you're quite new to it so you don't really know until afterwards how many people have watched it so I think they kind of gave me the figures afterwards and said that 55 million people had tuned into the NBC royal wedding special in 2011 um and I remember being signed up by them. You know, they put you through a kind of auditioning process. And there was a woman over in America who was the head of talent for NBC at the time who had said to the London Bureau, you know, we need a female commentator to be our royal expert. And they went through a few people. And I remember going to the audition, not really realizing how serious it was. And I think I had, um, yeah, I had just had my son um when they got engaged my son was four months old and I was still on maternity leave so I think I I literally did a kind of mock interview with them with my a a baby in a (laughs) a, you know a carry cot at the studios in London and just did this piece to camera and this lady liked me and so I got signed by them I mean it's American telly is a bit nuts it's like totally over the top can you be in makeup for 4 a.m you know (laughs) not leave it till 8am and you've got more hairspray on than sort of a Jackie Collins book launch um, but it's all good fun and then the Americans are good they're very professional people they're fun people they love all of the intricacies of the ins and outs of the royals and what they do you know they're not as familiar as uh, with it all as the British so they ask you know why is I remember somebody saying on air you know why is Prince Philip not the king and you've got to you know explain all that um, 
a huge amount of resource was put into that and Harry and Meghan's wedding as well. Harry and Meghan's wedding was even more stressful because William and Kate's was actually on a Friday and I was on a Sunday paper. So my main day where I have to write everything is a Saturday for Sunday. Hmm. And actually we ended up getting this good line about we needed a new story for this Sunday paper. And I'd managed to establish that as soon as the couple had been driven or William had driven Kate away in that Aston Martin with the tins and just married on the back they had gone back to Clarence house I believe and the first, the people had champagne on ice hooray you've just got married and they both said no all we want is a cup of tea and it was quite nice we did a headline about tea for two that their first request as a married couple was a cuppa and then Harry and Meghan's was much more difficult because theirs was on a Saturday. So I was writing copy for the Sunday Express as their royal editor. So I'm meant to be anchoring all their copy. But I was also on for NBC all day. So I kind of pulled out after about five hours of broadcasting and had to write about five spreads of copy in about two hours, which was a little bit pressurised. But these, these stories write themselves, Alex, because it's all about the pictures, really. school and indeed when you're at university you get all of the careers training but nobody sorts of says to to you as a woman in a you know high pressured career you may feel completely compromised you know the day that you feel you're a great journalist is probably the day that you feel you're a bad mother and vice versa and women are always under more pressure than men on this I'm sorry I don't appear to be kind of casually sexist but it's true you know, sometimes women have to go to work and pretend they don't even have families and then they have to go home and pretend they don't even have careers. I don't think men are under the same pressure in that regard. I don't know. I just made it work. I mean, he was asleep in the carry cot when I did the audition. It was fine. I think the producer later said, you know, that endeared her to me a bit because there I was as a busy working mum making it happen. I mean, maternity leaves with the kids have been compromised by royal jobs in that case so my eldest who's 14 now I kind of got eight months off with her because not much had happened in 2013 on the royal beat no what am I saying she was born in 2008 so that was quite quiet I'd had Harry four months before the engagement broke and I had to go and deal with I had to end my maternity leave effectively to cover Kate and William because it was such a big story Um, and then when Uh, Kate was pregnant with Prince George I was also pregnant and so I was covering his birth at the Lindo wing on a very very hot July weekend three weeks before I gave birth so I was like one of the roly-polies the only good thing about that was that a policeman spotted me and gave me a chair right at the front of the pack so when they came out and we were interviewing them I had a prime position but generally speaking it's been hard but the more I've progressed in my career, the more autonomous I've been able to be. When you first start out in journalism, you're sent all over the place and, you know, you're on what we would call door knocks or you're you're waiting for somebody to appear at something and it takes all night and you're saying to the news desk, can I leave? And the news desk is saying, no, stay, give it a bit longer. Whereas now I'm kind of 20 years into the career, um, I'm, I'm working as hard as ever, to be honest, but people don't ask me where I am anymore so I have sometimes been found to be filing copy at the back of assembly halls or um, in gymnastics competitions you know it's just the way it works and the kids god love them they just put up with it as does my long-suffering husband they they know the drill 
they also know that unfortunately news can't wait so people are sometimes astonished do you really have to drop that to do this and it's like well yeah if something momentous happens and all of the recent stuff with Harry and Meghan as well my god that's taken up a huge amount of time and because they're over in America stuff drops late in the day so just when you think you've finished and you're about to go home suddenly some bombshell has landed I mean, the amount of work that was required to just write up the revelations in spare alone, I think, drove my entire family to distraction. But it is what it is. Obviously, now you're preparing for uh, something that hasn't happened in seven decades, uh, a coronation, the coronation of King Charles III. How are you preparing for that? Because it weirdly, it's something that will be out of the public consciousness for the majority of people in the country because they weren't born when the last one happened. Yeah, I mean, God, how I'm not preparing for it very well because every time we try and write pre-pieces, something else happens that needs to be written for the next day. Um, with any story like that, you obviously can write quite a lot in advance. We're kind of analysing the king's relationship with his sons and the king's relationships with his siblings and his relationship with the military and with the countryside. You can think of lots and lots of ideas that you can pre-write. And the news has changed a lot since I first started in this career circa 2000 because of the internet. So in the old days, you had a bit more time to kind of work on things and, oh, it will go in on Saturday. Of course, the 24-hour news cycle means that there's an immediacy to everything you're writing. The online must have it now, even if you've got more time to perfect it a bit for the following day's paper. And Telegraph is a very much digital first endeavour. So as soon as things happen, they have to be up and then people want explainers and then they want long reads. So we prep for all that. We've got lots of amazing people in our team who handled the Queen's um, funeral with great aplomb sort of applying all of that kind of thinking to things behind the scenes and then commissioning people like me to write stuff. Um, when it comes to actually, you know, the, the event itself, you can't plan that. You never know what might happen. It, looking at the Queen's death, different things become a, sto a story totally unexpectedly. That that journey for, by the coffin from Balmoral, because we didn't necessarily expect for her to pass away in Scotland. Uh, and that uh, procession through the streets of Edinburgh you know, that's a whole story in itself um, all the way to perhaps more kind of banal stories like fountain pen gate you know who knew that the new Lee Cra you know the new king had this issue with 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 his stationery so and and also you never quite know what's going to be the final image big royal events they're all about the imagery the words are important and people do and they did at the time want to pour over sort of five thousand word obituaries but it's also just about the visuals and then writing to visuals as with the funeral and indeed the platinum jubilee there will of course now be a narrative about prince harry's attendance without Meghan, and we'll be looking at the main event but we'll be also obviously analyzing the family dynamic and people say, oh, you know, well, it's none of your bloody business and why do you bother with all this? Well, that's because what people are talking about it over their own breakfast. So this, I, I find people can be quite funny about newspapers and the media. And it's like I have to sometimes say to people, OK, well, let's put it this way. Have you ever in your life, if somebody's come up to you, tapped you on the shoulder and said, I have got something astonishing to tell you, you won't believe it. Have you ever turned around and said, no, I don't want to hear that piece of information. All the news is doing is giving people the information that hopefully they want and then some. 
um, take it or leave it. You know, I get lots of people reading stories I've written about Harry and Meghan saying, why are you writing about these two? No one's interested. And I do, it makes me laugh because I'm like, well, you've clearly read it. <laughs> you've read it and you've commented on it. So there's always an appetite. Although my mother was actually born in Pontefract and so was a Yorkshire lass, I, you know, brought up in Hertfordshire, very close to London, so very much a southerner. And I, what I liked about Leeds is just being somewhere completely different and being up north. I mean, it is a different sort of people I felt had a, a different attitude and it opened my mind up to kind of just a different way of life, really, that wasn't really focused on the capital. Um, I met a much more diverse group of people than I ever did at school because I was privately educated um, not necessarily ethnically diverse because I had a lot of I went to school with a lot of people of color and a lot of people from different religions and all the rest of it but I perhaps I'd say um, kind of like you know from a wealth perspective or people's backgrounds were very very different to mine and that was no bad thing at all and I learned a lot from people who had sort of come from pretty tough backgrounds and a close friend of mine had had a pretty had gone to a not great comp and had done brilliantly well. I sort of was quite in awe of her because it did kind of wake me up to the fact that my education had been a real gift and that not everybody had benefited from from what I'd benefited from from at school. Um, I met a lot of very impressive people, lots of very clever people. My God, particularly on a law degree, as you can imagine. Um, being, I was going to say, being at O'Hagan's, the new inn near 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 my um, uh, hall of residence in Headingley was formative, um, and of course my my hall of residence doesn't exist anymore because Tetley got closed down and I think redeveloped, so that was a whole new way of life. Ending up in Headingley in our pajamas, buying La Mancha wine from the local supermarket. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> one piece of advice do you wish someone had given you before you got to university well I was actually quite homesick which probably sounds a bit pathetic now but I was going I was away from home and I, I left home to go to university at quite a difficult time in my family life because my mother and I'd written about this extensively and talked about it was an alcoholic she was in a very bad place I had moved out I was living my parents had got divorced when I was about 13 and I decided to live with mum and I'd lived with her for as long as I could and then it became completely unmanageable. So in between my A-levels, I moved back with my dad and my brothers and I'd only just got settled with them and I'd missed them terribly because I'm extremely close to my two older brothers. That by the time it came to going to university, I didn't really want to go because I didn't want to leave <laughs> my father and my brothers when I'd only just been reunited with them. So when I first got to Leeds, I was very homesick and didn't really enjoy it. And suppose I'd go back in time and say to my my younger self, don't, just don't worry, it'll all be fine. I think sometimes you can get to university and you'll think you're an adult and all grown up and everyone else is having the time of their lives. And if you're that student who is sort of like sitting in their room thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've chosen the wrong place or I'm a, I don't belong here or I'm never going to make any friends. Don't be daft. Of course you will. It may just take some time. 
I must uh, pay tribute at this point to my bestie at uni, um, a girl called Abby, who I still remain close to, who helped me enormously. You know, you just need to meet one mate. And she kept on, as I was sort of, I, I had my Vauxhall Nova up there for the first term. I think because I was like reluctant not to stay and I thought I'm going to not drive down to the campus but kind of veer off down the M1 back home and she was the one who sort of steered me in the right direction and said don't be ridiculous you've got to stick this out and I'm so glad I listened to her. I would also say to people do embrace the extracurriculars because another very enjoyable thing that I did in Leeds was play lacrosse weirdly this is slightly controversial i didn't actually play for the university i ended up playing for the met because one of my friends played there but the point was just doing some sport at uni or anything that you're into you know poetry club if you're a journalist join the student newspaper for goodness sake i actually didn't i did join an organization where we were all writing poetry and short stories so i was writing at uni but um joining a student paper is a great idea if you want to become a journalist Thanks very much for listening to our first episode of Leeds Voices, the new weekly podcast brought to you by the University of Leeds. Please make sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leeds Voices was written and produced by me, Alex Regan, and is brought to you by the University of Leeds Advancement Team. For more updates, follow us on social media at Leeds Alumni or email us at alumni at leeds.ac.uk. Thank you.